Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and this is the conclusion of last week's episode. So the interview last week was with Misty Kalkofen, and we really got to talking, which isn't a big surprise um, for those that know me. But additionally, um, Misty is just a fascinating person. She's been there and witnessed the whole resurgence of craft cocktails and um, has really seen the resurgence of mezcal uh, as well. And she's been not only uh, a witness to that, but also um, one of the biggest proponents of mezcal um, and agave spirits and, and has really been at the forefront of bringing those spirits back into the uh, forefront and definitely uh, into availability in the United States market. Um, anyhow, I, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please check it out. It's, it's labeled as uh, Drinking Like Misty Calcofin Part 1. Please find that. You can find it in our archives at shiftdrinkpodcast.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Um, you know, this is kind of the uh, second part of her career while we spoke about kind of the beginning of craft cocktails and starting in 1996 when she was a college student at Harvard Divinity School um, and working under the tutelage of Brother Cleve, moving forward up into her introduction with uh, Ron Cooper of Del Maguey. Uh, and so as we move into the second part of her career, that's where we start this week's episode. Additionally, um, before I let you go, I want to recommend that you all check out Drinking Like Ladies. Uh, that's Misty's book that she co-authored. Additionally, a podcast that she's operating as well and co-hosting, which is uh, Drinking Like Ladies. While we're on the topic of uh, podcasts, I, I mentioned it on our New Year's Eve episode, but I want to uh, reinforce that. We are getting ready to launch within the next week or so, so depending on when you listen to this show, new podcast. A spinoff of Shift Drink, I guess you could say. I'm co-hosting the show with one of my liquor distributors. His name is Kevin Franzen, and we are launching A440 Podcast. It's not in food and beverage related. Strictly underground music, metal, punk, hardcore, kind of the underground where you don't hear from these musicians quite as much. But, you know, as we all know, everyone's got a story to tell. And in this case, they've got music to play as well. So uh, find us on Instagram where we usually are more active. Again, these accounts are just kind of getting started at the moment. But on Instagram, you can find us at A440pod. Again, on Instagram, it's A440pod. You can also um, find us at a440podcast.com. On Twitter, we are a440podcast as well. And so look us up, check it out, subscribe so you get all those episodes right as they drop. Definitely reviews immediately are fantastic. The first episode will just be introductory, so uh, not blowing anyone's socks off, but we've got some really cool interviews to follow that up. So enough about me. Let's get back to Misty Kalkofen and talking about uh, mezcal and agave, the work that she's been doing in Mexico for the last uh, decade or so with Ron Cooper and Delma Gay Mezcal. Enjoy. Cheers. There's this kind of tendency now in bars to chase after the the lone bottle in a city or, the, you know, they've got this and I've, you know, you, you see um, Vita and a lot of wells now. And that's just crazy to think about where we couldn't even get any mezcal at all, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, you see this in restaurant, chain restaurants, you see it in, you know, bars all over the country and it's fantastic and i personally love that because i know that at minimum i can if they if they don't have talented bartenders or a really like well thought bar program i can just order a neat pour of vita and i'm cool you know so i'm like if i see that i'm like okay i've got a backup plan <laughs> you know <laughs> uh Delmage launched vita in 2010 and 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 that definitely was a game changer for the category right but i think it's really important to note that 
Vida developed out of a trip that um, Passiano, who's the producer of Vida, who uh, it's the Passiano is the patriarch of the family we work with in San Luis del Rio, um, Passiano Cruz Nolasco. Uh, Ron uh, brought Passiano and Don Lincho, who was the original producer of Santa Catarina Minas. He passed away about two years ago and his sons took over. Um, but um, he brought Don Lencho and Passiano to the States in about 2006. And Passiano is like a really astute businessman. He's like no nonsense. He has a great sense of humor, but like business, right? And um, he was, they were in Chicago and he was looking around and he's like, these folks aren't ready for my 47% mezcal. Like they don't know the category. And also like, they're that's not what they're drinking. They're drinking tequila. That's, you know, 38 to 40%, you know, like they're just, this is a completely different animal. And, and it really got his mind and Ron's minds working around that. And that's when they went back to, to work on what Vita would be right. Something that was made in a, an artisanal style, um, in the exact same way, but at, at this proof where it was a lower price point for the bartenders, but also something more accessible, to a community that really didn't understand Moscow, right. <laughs> you know, I, and that was just, I love that it was that partnership has always been there from 95. Passiano was one of the first wow. producers that Ron started working with. And it's one of those really you know, great products um, that's easy to introduce people uh, with kind of a low barrier to entry. You know, they don't have to risk spending, you know, $45 for a, a poor, you know, if they, and it's, and it is because there is nothing in the line. You know, I think another misconception because it is affordable that it's just, it's lesser quality than some of the other more expensive. Uh, and it's just, it's just different. And that's what I do love about kind of the whole double gay line is that you're not going to, you, you wouldn't put your name on it if it weren't quality product. And it's, it's so true. I learned that lesson on my, my first trip to Oaxaca, man, like I, I flew down a couple days before the rest of the group did. And I went out with Ron to a producer that was interested in being like, was kind of pitching Ron, mm -hmm. right? And we tasted the mezcal and, and Ron's like, what do you think? And I was like, I think it's pretty good. And he's like, I think we should buy a liter, take it back and taste it fresh in the morning. Like that's his jam, like before you know, like before he's really introduced anything else into his mm. palate to taste it. So uh, the following morning, he tasted it again, and and <laughs> he's like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "I still think it's good." And he's like, "I think it's good, but it's not Del McGay good." And I was like, "Okay." Wow. <laughs> you know, he has a very specific, like he has a very for somebody who wasn't raised in the hospitality industry, he has a very well trained palate, and part of it is what he knows, uh, what what he loves, but uh, the other part of it is what he's learned over these many years of, of, of going out, talking to producers and tasting, you know, um, and, and being under their tutelage to a certain degree, you know. And so it's super cool. He's very discriminating. It's very discriminating because you think about being in it for 26 years, the number of producers we could be working with. Right. Yeah. If he was just going Harry Curry, carry all over the place, you know. <laughs> well, it's funny because of all of those producers that he's not working with, um, you know, it's this kind of uh, concept or, or not concept, but business model of working with producers, um, partnering with them, 
putting it in the bottle, putting it out there. And, you know, we've seen this a lot in the last decade, you know, especially between 2010 and 2020, which I think we're going to start kind of referring to as this golden era of craft and farm to table, because I think the pandemic is really, you know, kind of resetting that. And um, so it's going to be very different going forward. But, you know, um, these brands that he chose not to work with, um, we started seeing other people saying, hey, this is a great idea. Look what Ron Cooper did. And going down and picking up a lot of those producers and bringing them into the States under different brands and which eventually end up becoming, I guess, competitors um, and, and a, to a degree. Um, again, it's just kind of hard to mess with the originals, <laughs> you know, um, when you build the market, you know. But, uh, you know, it's... I We've we've talked tequila on the show before with Jay Schrader, Um from uh, up in Chicago, I, you know, he's been all this time mm-hmm. with Rick Bayless and all that. And anybody listening to this, you know, if you want to get in depth, kind of the basics going forward, what Mescala is, how it tastes like, or why it tastes like it tastes, please go back and check that out. Because having Misty on the show, I wanted to be able to kind of take that to level two and be able to talk about the specific <laughs> brand. Because until you understand it, there's no reason to talk about the brand. You know, we're just kind of like hawking a brand at that point. But th- there is a reason that that we see all of this now in this, this golden age where you can go into a lot of different places and they have not only Domagay, but maybe eight or nine other, you know, brands on the back bar. And that was completely unheard of, especially when you started your career, you know, back with Cleve, you know, spinning records in 96. I mean, you couldn't even, you know, your everyone's perception of Moscow was the, the worm in the bottle, right? Which isn't even a worm, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and so how, as things have changed, how do you feel that we're going to be affected by what happened this year? Because I know that as we talked earlier and at the beginning of the show, you talked about kind of being locked in your apartment, which means that you haven't been in Oaxaca and you're known for taking bartenders, um, educators, anything. And you yourself are one hell of an educator uh, and people learn so much from taking these trips. And I don't know anybody that hasn't been to Mexico with you that hasn't come back and said, I learned so much. It was one of the best trips I've ever taken. Uh, again, I'm now uh, co-hosting a new podcast called A440 uh, with a friend of mine, Kevin Franzen, who took that same trip. And he said it was single-handedly, hands down, the best trip he's taken. And he's in the industry. He's taken a lot of them. Um, and so it definitely leaves a mark on the people that have done that. And we're talking about kind of education, and that's, I know you've been big on that well, because you've, I've heard you say numerous times behind every bottle as a family, you know, it's like this mantra yeah. and you've talked about some yeah, of those. I, I, it's so important. And it makes me so happy to, to hear you say that people come back feeling like that, that they took in so much information. Yes. Like, I, I think that so frequently there's so many trips that are out there that people are trying to outdo one another. And, yeah. and a lot of times it becomes more about the entertainment mm-hmm. and less about the education. Yeah. The extravagance um, of it. I've been I, on those trips where you're like, okay, cool. I got to go to whatever. I went to this country, but I'm like, you know, we saw some stills, but I know what stills look like. Um, you know, especially if you're kind of catering towards, bartenders and um, industry people, like we kind of already know the basics. You don't need to show us the base, you know, kind of here's where, here's our still. Like we're going to ask you, you know, about the process, about the mash. And and so, you know, that's, I think, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but you know, that's, that's where they're coming back and they're learning because it, it does go beyond just the kind of basic, like, Hey, there it is over there. What else do you want to go? You guys want to go and uh, drink all night? You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
obviously there's sure. a balance. You can't have a really good time, but also, <laughs> um, but, but I also, I also think that the difference a lot of times is why, why are you giving the trip in the exactly. first place? Are, are you sending somebody on the trip who you want to carry your product or is somebody coming because right. they've carried your product? Cause I think those are two very different yeah. things. And we, we've been very consistent and only doing what we call loyalty trips. So the people that are coming are already people that are supporting the brand. So they come with a certain appreciation, which I think is super important, you know? And um, one of the lessons I learned very quickly and very fast in my role as kind of the person running all of these trips, I spend in in old earth, I was spending about 50% of my Mm. time in Oaxaca running bartender trips and, and distributor trips is that really setting people up for what the trip was going to be, right? Like, it's not going to be your average trip. Like, don't bring your fancy clothes. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> bring your hiking boots, you know? <laughs> like, bring your bug spray. Bring, Every you know, single like, person um, has that photo from trips with you of them out there with the uh, pinas, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> but but really understanding that our, first and foremost, it's about spending time with our families because that's the heart and soul of what right. we do. We couldn't, we couldn't be Del Maguey without them. Um, but, and also taking advantage of that time with them to learn this knowledge that only they know, mm-hmm. you know, we, you can read as many books as you want, but every single producer has a tradition of what they do and reasons why they do it. And so you can read every single book you want about Mescal, but when you're sitting with, um, Don Rogelio and Santa Maria Alvarez, his story is going to be very, very distinct and unlike any other person's story um, and, and a recognition of that. This isn't just another gin trip, you right. know, <laughs> where you're finding out the the whatever the botanicals right. are, you know, and, and this isn't a slight on gin. It's no, just yeah. a, a recognition of how different the two things are. And so it it's I for me, it's very clear that not just our brand, but the category was built on education because if you don't, if you aren't educated to understand why the spirit tastes the way it does, where those flavors are coming from, why it's higher alcohol, all of these different things, you're not going to like it. You're not going to appreciate it. Um, and so that's something that Ron was aware of right away. Like uh, after I met him, he, I met him at Green Street that night I told you about. And within a year, he had me in Oaxaca. And right after that, he started paying me, asking me to do trainings here in Boston, wow. you know, paying me one off trainings. So, you know, I'm about to have my eighth year of full time anniversary, <laughs> my eighth anniversary mm-hmm. for full time work with Salma Gay. But I was really helping him for two, two and a half years before that. Um, because he knew that without understanding it, people weren't going to appreciate it. And that's really prescient because, and, you know, now we're in an area where you're you're giving the education to the people that are buying it. And they are giving that same education to their guests because people are very curious specifically about, um, you know, uh, liquor that's so rooted in tradition that is... Uh, so rich in, in history and not only that, but the flavors just have so many layers. And I find that um, Moscow people or, or agave people, people that are like really interested in Moscow are particularly interested in that history. Where did it come from? Who makes it? You know, and I, I really think that it was very forward thinking to start off with that, you know, um, and not losing it right from the beginning because it, it could have been just as yeah. easy for him to throw in a bottle and say, hey, here's a brand and then just go hawk it like tequila you know just yeah um or getting some famous rappers to you know put their name on it 
No, 100%. I guess it's, then, it's, it's, it's agave. Know. It would have to be a famous actor. Sorry. Not, the rappers do champagne. <laughs> uh, you know, actors do tequila. <laughs> But I think your question was really about what's going to happen on the other yeah. side, right? And, you know, you mentioned it, that, like, the the growth of the category, the explosion of the number of brands that have been available, we've seen it, you know. And it, it, you're seeing it in Ohio, but, like, I went before the pandemic, if I went to California, there would be so many brands on the back bar. I'd be like, what, what the hell is that? I, you know, yeah. like, because... Brands that come in, they want to be in California, New York, and Texas. Usually those are the three spots they want to be in first. So you'll see those, you'll see brands there uh, unless they have a connection with, um, you know, a money person or a familial connection in other states. Mm -hmm. That's usually where they start out, you know? Um, and, And so the explosion in the number of brands has been remarkable over the last, you know, it started about 10 years ago, but really in the last five Mm -hmm. years, it's just, and crazy, you know, and it really felt like there, especially because the so many of them were coming out of Oaxaca, and so it just really felt like a bubble, right? Whether you're looking at from an environmental standpoint, like how much agave is actually really available, right? Um, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's and, a really important, also, you know, uh, topic that I want to address before we wrap up today, because you know the sustainability of agave is much talked about in in our industry. Um, and I guess, you know, let's, let's start there. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned it, but let's go a little bit deeper on uh, the sustainability because these are uh, plants that are uh, wild. They take a long time to get where they are. So, you know, talk about that a little bit for a second. Well, you know, there's, so there's a couple different sides of it. First of all, there's the cultivated side, which is predominantly espadine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I really, I always talk about espadine as being the backbone of the industry in a lot of ways, you know, because, because it is cultivated, because it has a, a faster maturation period, it only takes like seven to 11 years to reach maturity as opposed to 15 or 18 or 30 years in some cases with the wild varietals. Um, it has a high sugar content, so you get more yield per kilogram of raw material, like all of these things. You know, I, we can plan and forecast because we're planting, right. but you have to be really forward sure. thinking, right? Like we have 25 years of history that we can look at. So when we're going like, okay, if we continue to grow at the same rates, how many plants do we need to put in the ground now? You know, and so we're very fortunate to have that history to look at. Um and so that's really kind of, I like to say that's the backbone end of the industry. And, and espadine is wonderful and delicious and, you know, diverse depending upon where it's coming from, as far as flavors, where it's coming from and the, and the hands of the producers, the hands of the makers, you know, really lovely. But like you said before, everybody's always listening, looking for the esoteric, right? So as, so as soon as somebody hears that tepestate can take 22 to 35 years to reach maturity. That's all they want to drink. And they're like, I love tepestate. And it's like, then all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure on this particular varietal. Right. Um, which I don't think we're at a precipice of danger in a lot of ways, except for the fact that a lot of people 
or harvesting in a very small area. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, everybody is is kind of looking for producers in a very small space, which puts undue pressure in a very limited geographical area, especially considering the denomination of origin of Mezcal is the largest deal in the world. Yeah. Encompassing you know, municipalities in nine states of Mexico. It is the largest CEO in the world, but the majority of the mezcal that you're seeing anywhere in the world is coming from Oaxaca, Mm -hmm. one state. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It has to do with ease of getting your product uh, verified. It has to do with the biodiversity of Oaxaca, Um, like all sorts of things around that. But that's a challenge too. Like, are we going to hit this precipice, you know, and is there going to be a bubble that breaks? Um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that our organization does around sustainability in a lot of ways, whether, you know, tons around agave uh, reforestation, ton around timber reforestation, mm-hmm. because we're using direct wood fire stills and of course wood in the Ornos as well. Um, but then there's a lot of other aspects of sustainability around uh, around everything from economics to um, food security. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> people don't stay in the spot where they grew up and where they've been making their mezcal if they're not if if they don't have a good life, right? So all sorts of different things, and I think that's super super important. Um, you know, it's it, I, there isn't an overall answer. Sure. <laughs> See this, I I think um, I I think the onus is on the brands to really be very forward as far um, as far as um, uh, not forward's not the word. Sorry, this this big uh, yeah, <laughs> mezcal negroni and lack of, of dinner uh, is starting to hit in. But a very uh, you know very forthcoming in what they're doing as far as sustainability is sure. concerned. I think that's really important. Um, and so I think it's important that brands are are very forthcoming in that information. I think it's extremely important for the consumers to be paying attention to what's Absolutely. going on, right? Um, everybody is very, cons- uh, not everybody, but many people who are interested in craft spirits are interested in where they pay so such close attention to where their, their food is coming from and what they're putting in their body mm-hmm. when, when they have to chew it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So why do we think about it in a different way when we're mm-hmm. sipping on it, mm-hmm. right? And and I think if there was ever a, a spirit in the world where you should be conscientious about that, it's mezcal. You know, it's agave distillates, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, and everything from sustainability of the raw material to sustainability of the producers, um, their livelihood, all of that kind of thing, all of those kind of things, um, it's huge. Um, and that's, of course, that's where education right. comes into play. People who saw that their favorite actors started a mystical <laughs> right. brand and started buying it have no idea sure. that there are all of these issues right. at play. And um, that, that and ecosystem so that you guys have in, in Delmage, I mean, how it feeds itself is just kind of a wonderful cycle between the education to the producers. I'm sorry, from the producers to you, to the buyers to the consumers and then kind of back around because, you know, then they're asking questions and like being able to kind of bring into that ecosystem, literally the ecosystem, the biodiversity, the sustainability issues. And um, I mean, it's so important to talk about. And it almost seems like the conversation's almost starting to go hand in hand, at least with industry folks. You know, I 
I hear a lot yeah. about, you know, the bats and the importance of the bats and um, agave. And we hear about, um, you know, monocultures and all these things that are, are, are issues. And, it, you know, it one thing you kind of don't hear about as much is like sustaining the families that, you know, make the product. You know, everybody likes to talk about, oh, my God, this is from the distiller, you know, this guy or that guy. But, you know, it's a family that has to, you know, live. They've been doing this for generations. They've got to be able to put food on the table, you know, make sure they can make their payments and, and pay their workers in a, in a safe way, you know, um, make sure they're not exploiting workers as we've seen in like kind of the rum world in Nicaragua and other countries, you know. Um, and so all of these things, I, you know, I think what you're doing has started the conversation more so in the, the kind of agave world than any other brand, I think, that is out there. And available because it's a conversation that you were very upfront with right off the top. Well, and I hope that's true. And there's one aspect of sustainability that we haven't touched on yet that I think is so important, especially as more people are starting brands from the States and more cultures are getting involved. And that's the cultural sustainability, right? right? Because each of these families are, are they're passing down generationally this very specific art of their family, the gusto historic, gusto historico, the historic taste of their mm -hmm. family's mezcal. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that I think is, is just as valuable as anything else that we've talked about. And if that isn't held to high esteem and high esteem, yeah. we have a serious mm -hmm. issue because once you have people from outside of the culture getting involved who don't appreciate right. that, then decisions are made around the number at the bottom of the spreadsheet rather than the things that are truly important to the people who are making the product, you know? And so I think that cultural side of things is it sometimes gets lost in the wash, right. you know, and it can, it can get lost in, you know, the, the conversations that go on in, on the Facebook boards, sure. you know, like all of these different things when you have the nerds around a category getting involved and it's like, okay, let's think about what's best for the producers and the families. Themselves. You know, as we talk about all these things, um, and gosh, this is gonna be like the longest episode ever. We're gonna be like, oh, this is a two episode, but it's cool. I haven't seen you for years and getting to chat while we can like hang out in our house. When what else are we gonna do anyway, right? Um, <laughs> this is a four part episode because Misty and I are bored. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it's you know, I say I've couple times now I've said, you know, I think that it's, you know, a lot of people within our industry, at least on the bar side of it and the hospitality retail side, that we're you know, we're starting to understand these issues and talk about them to the consumers. Now, um, I think it's easier for us to kind of imagine that familial connection, the tradition and all those things as um, Americans, right? Because, you know, Mexican culture has been so intertwined with, with the United States for so long that, um, you know, it's, you know, when he's like, oh, I'm going to go down to Mexico. It, it's not that far. It's pretty easy to get to. Uh, most Americans have like, at least, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of Americans have at least been to like, you know, a party city in spring break or something, Cancun or something. But, you know, we're starting to have this, not starting, but we've got this kind of image in our head of what Mexico looks like because a lot of us have been there. Now, I was just in Asia um, at the right before the pandemic. I spent uh, like five weeks in, in Southeast Asia. And... Um, I can tell you, 
everywhere I went in Bangkok, Singapore, and a little bit in Hanoi, not as much, but particularly in Singapore and Bangkok, Mezcal was like, oh, the charts. Everybody was obsessed with it. Everybody wanted to get like the coolest brands and the weirdest thing, like you said, you know, like, oh, let's get, this is a tapestate, this is a habali, all these different things. And they were really, really into it. But I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how, how and again, I, I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm just wondering how that um, kind of cultural outreach is, is working across the ocean. Because again, you know, we're so accustomed to, you know, having Mexican friends, family, neighbors, trips, exposure to Mexican culture that you wouldn't have if you're living on the other side of the world. Yeah, but I I think the thing that you're not thinking about is there's a lot of similarities in the appreciation of family right. and the Absolutely. appreciation of tradition. Yes. And so I think that that mezcal resonates um, in the Asian countries and with Asian cultures because of yeah. that. You know, like um, Ron... I don't know if you know this story, but Ron had always thought that he was going to like, he, he sold this huge, like how did Omega started as a crazy, crazy story, but he had sold this huge um, project art project. And he had what he called like some fuck off money. And he thought he was going to go to Asia because he's always in, in Japan specifically, because he's always appreciated Japanese mm. culture. And then he had a dream and it was all about these, um, uh, families and artists that he had met in Mexico and wow. Oaxaca. And so he woke up and he's like, I'm supposed to go to Oaxaca instead <laughs> of Japan. I love that vibe. Like, my so, dream told me to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, shortly after I started working with Del Miguel, he finally got to Japan and he went for three weeks. Um, and so we were, we kind of helped to set up some experiences for him and some included like, you know, we have our clay copitas and, and they're made by one particular family and the family is, is very kind of secretive about their process and everything, but they're very distinct and, and they're very in line with, um, the, the, the clay arts of Oaxaca, you know? Um, and so we set him up with some experiences with, um, uh, artisans who make sake cups um, and sets. And it was, he kept talking about the parallels, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And so I think, I, I think that the, the, the excitement over Mescal is because of the parallels and the quality. Yeah. That's, right? I, I didn't think of that. Um, You're right. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. what I experienced was just, um, I think some of the things that we have just picked up as from, like I said, having Mexican neighbors, friends, coworkers, is that just being exposed to the culture a little bit more that it's harder. Um, you know, my, my wife is Thai and I mean, she literally, when she moved here, knew nothing of Mexico, didn't know where it was on a map, you know, any of these things. And, and it's, it's the same way we are here. You know, I mean, how many Americans could point to Cambodia, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, those sorts of things. And it, it's a disconnect, but, you know, I, I think that it's a fantastic job that you guys are doing because like I said, I saw those bottles everywhere. And of course, when you're in oh. um, Singapore, you know, <laughs> that's where a lot of the booze in Asia goes all through. It's the world's busiest port. I, I learned that while I was there. I didn't know that. Um, it's not the biggest, but it's the busiest. And it is busy for especially a very small island nation. Um, yeah. But Domage everywhere. You know, it's what you guys have done is absolutely amazing. And, and like I said, we could turn this into a four part episode, but I've still got a, a couple of things I'm curious about because other than your work that you're doing there, you mentioned at the beginning, you are doing a podcast as well, but the podcast got started because you wrote 
a book. And that's when we actually yes. first started talking about having you on the show was when uh, Drinking Like Ladies came out. And then that never happened. And here we are stuck in our houses now. So, um, <laughs> but to, you know, the book's been out for a little while now. Um, and I've got yeah, a copy somewhere behind me. I, I, my organization's gotten worse over the last few months because I pick up books, I throw them <laughs> on the table, I read them, then I never put them back. And so it's somewhat organized back here, you know. But um, talk a little bit about that, how, how the book came about and what you were uh, trying to accomplish there because it's it's turning into a bigger thing now with your show. Yeah. Um, so I co-authored the book with my dear friend, Kirsten, a.k.a. Kitty Eamon. Um, and so Kitty and I met years and years ago when we were waiting tables in Boston. We waited tables together at a restaurant that has since closed called Tremont 647, um, famously known for their pajama brunch. <laughs> so she and I would serve um, a brunch in our pajamas. <laughs> I like um, this idea. But <laughs> <laughs> During that time, um, we launched a women's cocktail, a, a branch of a women's cocktail society called LUPEC, Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails. And I learned about this through my dear friend, Anne-Marie. Um, she had found it on the interwebs. <laughs> and she was like, Misty, I think that you would, this would interest you. And so um, LUPEC was started by a group of women in Pittsburgh um, who all had studied, most of them had studied women's history or women in art. Like they, there was an academic connection to the study of women in history. Um, but they were also appreciators of great cocktails and they couldn't necessarily find one in Pittsburgh mm. at the time. So they started this private society essentially to um, create great classic cocktails in their homes and they would have monthly meetings and each meeting would be around um, a specific um, event or person in a woman's history um, and a theme around that particular wow, yeah. event or person. Um, and then they also would throw at least one charitable event a year benefiting a women's charity in Pittsburgh. And so I contacted uh, the women who started the organization. I was like, could there be a Boston chapter? And they're like, of course. So we started it with a group of awesome women and kind of kept it straight and narrow and started raising all of this crazy money for women's organizations um, in Boston, which was super fun, throwing insane parties, <laughs> like for real insane parties. The first one was a, um, a speakeasy on a boat in Boston Harbor. So there was no address, but we had like a searchlight and you had to find us. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, super fun step. Um, and we started writing a weekly article in uh, the local rag, the weekly dig. Um, that kind of highlighted the two things. We'd always feature a classic cocktail and then we'd tell the story of an unsung woman in history in the article. And so um, Kitty was doing some work in the publishing industry at that point in time. And um, her friend Danielle was like, this should be a book. You guys should write a book. And so we're like, okay, let's put together a book proposal. Um, and we did. And then we proceeded to get turned down by over 20 different mm. people. <laughs> and everything from it's too niche, you know, like all, all of that kind of stuff. And <laughs> I'm, so I'm we, like, too niche? I, are you kidding me? All the cocktail books uh, I got, there's out there now. I'm like, I have entire books dedicated to some ridiculous subjects. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched for 10 years as um, a lot of people with less experience than we had got, mm -hmm. got, um, you know, 
got signed for right. books, cocktail books, um, most of them men, specifically white men. Um, I've heard of <laughs> and this trend. I honestly just, I, I just thought the project was dead, you mm. know? We, had, we kept doing the blog for a while and we were writing for the dig still and all that kind of stuff. So fast forward to 2016 when um, an orange abomination gets Ugh. elected into the White House and all of a sudden everybody's interested in women's rights in a way they never have been mm. before. And um, thank God Kitty still checked our old email associated really? <laughs> with oh, the wow. blog because out of the blue... An editor from Quarto sent us an email that was like, I saw your blog. Did you ever think about writing a book? Wow. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, we thought about it <laughs> 10 lot. years ago. We Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, they reached out to us based upon that very, very old blog that they found through searching. Um, you know, our original idea was based around classic cocktails, but the industry had changed yeah. so much. Um, between our original proposal. Um, so we had to redo our proposal. Um, and so we shifted it really to highlight current women on the bar and, uh, you know, luminaries in the bar industry. Um, predominantly, you know, bartenders globally, we did include some of our mentors, you know, like Julie Reiner mm. um, and Charlotte Voisy, you know, people that we would have been remiss to not right, have yeah. included. Um, but the way we set it up what is... We do. <laughs> right. We'll throw a little bone. <laughs> so we really wanted to incorporate the, the historical aspect. So we wrote the histories of 75 women, mostly historical, um, a few modern women because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and because... Dolly Parton, like there were a few like modern women that like it couldn't be out there without them, but predominantly women from around the globe that a lot of them you probably have never heard of. Um, and then the current female bartenders created a new cocktail inspired by the historical woman. And it was an amazing process, like a huge shout out to every single woman who contributed a cocktail because the amount of energy and effort and thoughtfulness that they put into creating a cocktail inspired by this woman was like, I get chills just thinking about it. Um, because part of, you know, when they contributed, when they sent us the recipe, they would also send us like, you know, tell us why, how this is inspired by the woman. And it was like, literally every ingredient tied to some aspect of this person's life, you know? Um, and so it was just a really amazing experience. I, we had, to, we wrote the book in three and a half months Wow! from the time we were signed. Like it was crazy, you know? Um, but it was so amazing to be collecting cocktails from people globally mm -hmm. you know amazing women in ghana and russia and that's and one of the things that, like my impressions of the book i mean it was not only were you writing something that hadn't been written before and giving a voice to a lot of people that didn't have one prior but it's a, a snapshot of like you know the world at that as it is and and you know for i can imagine people of the next generation like my niece you know who's only 10 years old like when she gets old enough to like go through that book and just be blown away by it because i do think that it's kind of um you say niche but it's beyond niche it's something that's kind of a, a special historical record um you know yeah. you have a copy in the library of congress yet <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed. I don't, I don't think know. you might be the only women studied. Book. Yeah. I don't know how much the <laughs> orange uh, abomination purged. 
too much. Too much is the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Well. Oh no, I'm gonna get there's like we don't there's like four about people that, that love much. to comment on my Instagram feed um, about you know it's all like far right stuff. I'm like, heck, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Do you not listen to this show? <laughs> like, if you've listened to this show, you know that you know know which which side of the aisle I'm on. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm pretty far to the left of that aisle. <laughs> Amen. Um, so that book, it's gosh, when did it come out? Has it? It's not been three years already, has it? Yeah, it. it yeah, God. it's three years. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess the last year is just kind of a a blur. Yeah. A blur, I mean, we're coming yeah. up on the one year yeah. mark um, of COVID nineteen. I mean, it, it, next month it'll be well. A year for the United yeah. States, you know, we're already kind of into the global pandemic and China um, at the year mark. And it's, it's just crazy that it's already clicked over. In fact, I got my health department renewal license in the mail uh, yesterday and I got this. I, said, I, I just paid this. What? I don't understand why they're sending me a second one. And my wife looked at me. She's like, that was last year. I'm like, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> I guess it was. It's been amazing that the time can move so slowly mm-hmm. and yet so yeah. fast all at the same I know, time I know. when you're in the middle of a pandemic. And so <laughs> when did you kick off the uh, the podcast that is linked to that? So that was at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. you know, March, March, April last year. And so we did eight episodes and we're going to launch again the beginning of March. We have a really, I'm super excited. You're smart. You're doing it in seasons. I should have thought of that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I think that, um, you know, this, we, we took a lot of time off, you know, Um, but it was really, it was a a lot of the things compounded, right? Some really heavy topics in the first Mm -hmm. season. Um, Also, we were doing it in a way, kind of escapism, right? To keep ourselves busy so that we didn't really have to think about what was going on. And so I think when we got to that, in the end of that season, Katie, Chris, our producer, and myself, we were all pretty exhausted. Um, And a recognition that we were had been going, going, going to try and put off kind of the reality of the situation Mm -hmm. that we were in. Um, And so we needed the time to recuperate you know, and to really like take the time to breathe and get back to where we wanted the podcast to be originally, which is really highlighting amazing women doing whatever they're doing, you know, and not specifically in the spirits world, but, but just women who are rad, you know? Um, and so I'm super excited for the season. We drew up our, like our wish list, and we've got quite a few of the yeses already. So I'm That's a good feeling, excited isn't it? for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm super excited. It's going to be a great season and um, we're going to start to include some mini episodes where we're going to be highlighting some of the women who contributed to the book, oh, cool. um, giving them the opportunity to talk about their cocktail. And so that'll be fun. So it'll be a full up episode every week and then a mini episode. Wow. So. It's a lot of work. Uh, where can it's a lot are, of work. Are you all on all the major platforms? You have website, all that you want to throw out there? Well, yeah. Drinkinglikeladies.com. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. We're hosted through Spirit of Rock podcast. Whoa. So you can check us out there as well with Sailor, her her platform, which is super rad. Um, yeah. Please check it out. Let us know what you think. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I I totally agree with you. Yeah, it just having that kind of release and escape to focus on something, especially at a time where, you know, especially in our industry, you know, I 
you know, there, we've lost so much of like, I guess the passion, you know, it's sucked a lot of the passion out of a lot of us, at least on the operating side in retail, you know, where it's become a job again, <laughs> you know, which sucks because like I've had the jobs. I started to have that feeling, you know, lately of what it, at my last actual job when I was a, a restaurant manager for a chain restaurant and it's starting to feel like that. And like, so, you know, sitting and having these conversations with, with folks like you, it just kind of re-energizes, reminds me why I'm here, why I do this and why I, you know, I, I sometimes I have to force myself to do it because I mean, the depression is real and the mental health issues are for sure real. Um, but I have, I, I'm one of those people that feels guilty if I waste time. <laughs> you know, and so we are children of uh, children of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, any free moment. Yeah. I'm either, you know, if I'm not playing music, I'm, you know, listening to a book or listening to a podcast. And I feel like I just need to always be learning. I, I don't like to be just kind of watching Tiger King or some shit. Like I never watched that. People are like, oh, you should watch. It. I'm like, that's nine hours. Like I could listen to an audiobook in nine hours. I could read, you know, so you know, I, I just, and it's this, I don't know if it's a pathology or not. Like, I just have a hard time bringing myself to do like fun things. <laughs> I'm like, I must learn something. I must learn something as I do this um, other than going out drinking, which, you know, but even still, like you said, you know, we're the people on the side of the bar that are asking like, where does this come from? Who's, who makes it? And so it's always an educational experience regardless of what we're doing. And, you know, every time I talk to you, it's always a, an educational experience about everything. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, we should probably throw out uh, where to find all of the fun Delmagay uh, info. And so that if you're in a market that um, doesn't have it on the shelf, that you can find out where to order it and all these things. So where should people go to online to, to find all this info? Um, so our website is delmagay.com and you can definitely reach us obviously through that. Um, on Instagram, you can check us out at delmagay mescal. Um, I run that. So if you send a message through oh, cool. that, you'll, um, I'll be the one responding to you. <laughs> Very cool. Um, <laughs> um, but it's also a really great way to see, meet our producers virtually. Mm -hmm. There's some really beautiful videos. So you get a better idea of the process and I love the feed. Yeah. yeah. It's also, it speaks to that educational aspect, like beautiful photography, videos. Yeah, yeah. it's super cool. So, so you can do all that. Yeah. <laughs> That's neat. That's cool. Um, so those are the two best ways to reach us, I think, through the website and through the Instagram. Um, and plus, please check out our website. There's a lot of really great information there as well and some beautiful videos and an interview with Ron and all sorts of stuff like that. So if you're interested and you want to learn some more, that's a great way to do it as well. All right, Delmagay, is it Delmagay.com or Delmagay? Delmagay.com, and then the Instagram okay. is at Delmagay Mescal. There we are. And then we've got DrinkingLikeLadies.com. Yes. So um, I always forget to throw it out, but, you know, please check us out at ShiftMinkPodcast.com. And I know I mentioned it earlier in the show as well, but um, we are uh, just launching uh, A440, which is our um, heavy and extreme music podcast. So it's an offshoot of Shift Drink. Um, first episode is going up soon, so you can find us. And subscribe at a440podcast.com at the moment. Misty, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. And I joked around about it, you know, but I think we have been talking so long at this point that we just might uh, have to split this into two shows. So <laughs> that would be fantastic. Unless somebody wants to sit and listen to his bullshit for three hours. I'm totally cool with that, too. I'm like, but I'm four feet away from all of my mezcal at the moment. So I'm going to have to refill with a big stretch. 
much. You know, I'm a rum geek, so you know, there's a, a lot of um, parallels, you know, especially in like the Claran world. We always um, kind of use the mezcal in Mexico and Oaxaca as as a, a way to get people to wrap their head around that. So, yeah, um, it's always fun to talk to you. I hope that we get out of quarantine and and back to normal and vaccinated soon, so you can get back to Mexico and we can get back to uh, selling mezcal like we like we love. So I cannot wait, and thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Well, we'll definitely talk to you soon. I'll tell Cleve you said hello. Okay, <laughs> he just texted. <laughs> I'm gonna respond to him here. So, thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Until awesome. next time, cheers.